of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its Sing to me with shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sing the sweetest song of all. So we're in the book of Romans. I'd say we're still kind of an introduction. So a lion was proud of his mastery over the animal kingdom. And he went up to the bear and he asked the bear, am I the king of the jungle? Yes. Yes, you are the king of the jungle. And then he went up to the tiger and he says, am I the king of the jungle? And he says, yes. I mean, the tiger and the tiger said, yes, yes, you are the king of the jungle. The lions then went up to the elephant and the elephant grabbed him by his tusks and his trunk, threw him upside down, banged him against a tree, dunked him in the river, threw him out, put him on the thing. And the lion looked up through his red soaked bloodshot eyes and says, you don't have to be so mad if you don't know the answer. And the lesson behind that is sometimes our confidence is based on our pride. And the lesson is out of Romans chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses eight through 17. Actually, eight through, uh, yeah, 17. Uh, Last week, we did touch on verses one through seven. Feel free to go back to that. We'll probably go back to that a little bit. And we're going to start with verse eight. If someone could read, oh, not yet. So in part of this lesson, I'm going to bring up one of the... um, introductory thoughts when looking at Romans. Uh, The idea is that Paul must destroy their pride uh, so that he unifies them. What do we mean? Well, in last week's talk, we talked about two parts of Christianity that Paul is dealing with. You have what group? The Jewish Christians. And then you have what other part? The Gentile Christians. And they're somewhat unified However, they're not fully unified under Christ. Um, So Paul has to give them some reminders. And the past life for the Gentiles is pretty bleak. They come out of a lot of issues in Romans chapter 1 through 3. But so that the Jews, Jewish Christians in particular, don't get too much of a big head, Paul has to bring up the idea that, hey, you got a lot of problems too. So they're all being put on the same footing. No one has one bigger stance than the other one, although that seems to be where Paul is leading the people to begin with. He's trying to bring them to their commonality, and that commonality is sin. So he reminds them all of their past life. And then he reminds them that they have the free gift of justification. So which ones can glorify themselves, the Jewish Christians or the Gentile Christians, on their personal justification? No one can. It doesn't matter if you're a child of Abraham by the flesh or if you uh, came out of uh, worldly bondage and came through Christ. We're all saved through Christ So there is no one that has any greater relationship to God than anyone else. 
if it is through Jesus, and Jesus is the connector. And then he reminds them that, hey, God and the spirits are assist are needed to assist you to be like Jesus. So, uh, you know, once we hit that toddler age, uh, we need a lot of assistance for some reason because we've been selfish our whole life. Feed me, bathe me, change me, and when I cry, do everything for me. We are the center of our own universe. And then we become toddler and mom and dad kind of get fed up with, no, you can pick yourself up and get walking. I'm not carrying you anywhere. And then we get grumpy, 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 grumpy. And then we realize that, hey, through age, through experiences, through challenges, we need assistance. And the biggest challenges we have is the challenge of being like Jesus. And we need God and we need the Spirit's help. So we need to be humble. We need to withdraw from the pride that we have or could have and understand who's helping us become like Jesus. So my question to you is how might pride interfere with our Christian walk? Peer pressure. Peer pressure, okay, in what way? Like if uh, your uh, pride is like worried about people making fun of you at school and stuff like that, so you have an image of just, you know, instead of being vulnerable. Yeah. Going to church and doing your willing. Very good. I think uh, when we look back at verses 1 through 7, Paul made a list of, I'm an apostle. Did I get there by my greatness? No, it was a gift of God, wasn't it? I've been sent out. I've been made who I am, but I am a slave of Christ. Everything he has given me is because he is my master. And I have turned to him freely because everything that comes from him is a benefit. So why would I be, and this is where chapter one, verse 16 comes in, why would I be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why would a peer group be something that I'm worried about if this is the greatest information that I can receive on this earth or anywhere else. Yeah, very good, Jerry. Pride could interfere because I don't wanna be in that category to stand up for Christ and I wanna be my own self. Yes, yeah, he was chosen as we all are when we're in Christ, but we do know his apostleship was asked by Jesus specifically to reach to the Gentiles on a specific mission. So he was chosen. So we don't want pride to interfere with our walk with Jesus Christ. So if we get into verses eight through 10, we're gonna look at part of Paul's prayer. Somebody read verse 8 through 10 of chapter 1. Really big. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world, the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, 
making requests, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Okay. So, what's one of the things that he brings up in his prayer? What does he acknowledge? Their faith. All right. He do, uh, and that's a good thing. And their faith is being spread where? Everywhere. Around the known world at that time. It's being announced. It's a good thing. Now, if their faith and the obedience of their faith is being spread, uh, and Paul heard about some of the negative stuff, do you think some of the negative stuff might be spread as well? Absolutely. But we have here Paul focusing in his prayer among the positive nature before he gets into uh, some of the challenges that they have to work with. And he also acknowledges what? God and Jesus. And specifically, their what? Their will, their gospel. So earlier we heard that this is God's gospel in verses one through seven. And now we're hearing that, hey, uh, there's the gospel of his son. They are the same gospel, aren't they? The father and the son are equals. So you'll see that throughout this bouncing back and forth. God's gospel, Jesus' gospel. He'll even call it his gospel, you'll notice. But you'll find out that his gospel He's, he's using that as a sense that, hey, I'm taking ownership of what I have joined. He's not saying, this is my making. He is acknowledging that he is an apostle, he is a, ser a slave of God's gospel, and that leaves no room for change on his part or anybody else's part, and we get that fervently in Galatians. If anybody else proclaims another gospel other than what I have proclaimed to you, let him be what? Accursed. So, but if you ever been on a job and your boss telling you what to do, then maybe six months, three months, a year later, you're finally into the job and you're used to it. The boss doesn't have to lay out the day's task for you because you what? You own it. This is my job though I'm working for somebody else. And I think that's the idea that when Paul says this is my gospel, he's recognizing I have ownership into this, not creation of it, but I'm just a part of it. It's who I am. And it is something that can save people. So this prayer is uh, also an acknowledge that he doesn't have any control about what's going on, truly. Uh, it's all about what God has done. He, he prayed for a prosperous journey, and then but it said, I made mention of you always in my prayers. you think that was intercessory for them? Sure, sure. And, uh, and he's probably hoping the same from all the other people he's visited with, that uh, they continue to pray for him uh, in intercessory and uh, in all the facets of prayer and what blessings God can do for us. And then let's go on to verse 10 through 13. Let's look at Paul's desire. Verses 10 through 13. Somebody read that. In my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the may be open for me to come to you. 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to, become to, to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had, um, had among other Gentiles. Very good, very good read there, Aspen. Thank you. Um, all right. So when we talked about will, uh, Paul wanted to go to Rome, didn't he? On his way to Spain. But up until this point, what's happened? Yeah, again, we go back to the concept of slave. He is not under his own uh, will. That he is obedient to the will of God. And evidently, Romans was possibly written while he was in Corinth. That's the conservative belief. And uh, this was all during the third missionary journey. Uh, many of his epistles are already written. And uh, he's heard about Rome, what's going on there. Evidently, he's never been there. And there's already a church there or churches, house churches. There's the church groups. And, uh, and he has big concern from them. And up to this point, uh, he still hasn't gone to Jerusalem yet uh, to where he would be uh, early on in Acts when he would be arrested and eventually sent to Rome as a prisoner. So all this is prior to that time. Uh, so I guess going to prison, uh, being sent to Caesar, uh, was part of God's will for him. So that longing, he wanted to go for a while. Um, it, it was an aching. Have you ever had an aching to go somewhere? Yearning. Where? A yearning. A yearning, yeah. A longing, a yearning. Uh, and it was just more than sightseeing, I'm imagining, wasn't it? It was, hey, I think I could do some real good for the body of Christ. And here is a huge city with great possibilities thinking like an evangelist you're going how many interconnections in life can we connect with people here who are going through this area and where can they go in this world boy this would be a great place maybe that was going through his mind but he also wanted to impart what what did he want to impart spiritual to the people gifts. spiritual gifts Anybody have any idea of what he might be referring to? Here? <coughs> spiritual endowment. Good. Now, does that mean that it's necessarily giving them the gifts of miracles? It's a gift of grace. Well, I like how you said that. What do you mean a gift of grace? Well, I can't think that. That's okay. Grace, most people think of grace as what? Probably. Getting what you don't deserve. All right. And the main thing that we're getting that we don't deserve is what? What? Salvation. Salvation, forgiveness. But God's grace is also shown in the gifts that he has given us individually. For where does, well, it doesn't have to be miraculous. 
It could be administration. It could be servant. It could be this, that, and the other that's spoken about in other places. Not all those are for miraculous laying on of hands, but something that's gifted to us. Yes? Just wondering if it could just be the, like also the, the gift of them all being together. Because like Paul, he's the elevation that I long to see you. you know. And I think that's where he's really going. I don't think, although he could lay his hands on people, I don't think that's the purpose of what he's saying there for in the next verse right after that it says for the purpose of what? To take your receive Nope. Uh not yet. To be mutually encouraged. So it's almost as if I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now Whatever it is, it's something that would benefit them. But them being benefited would also do what for him? Benefit him too. It's a mutual thing. So it could be his presence. It could be uh, his stories of salvation that have been pressed on and brought. Uh, It could be... uh, uh, the unification needed between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Verse 11, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the King James has comfort, to be comforted. Yep, mutually encouraged, to be comforted. And that's the part. So you'll, you'll get either two uh, modes of thinking here that the spiritual gifts are actually laying on a hands for miraculous gifts that they can have. But uh, one of the things we know about that is do does people having these miraculous spiritual gifts that they received in the first century always did it always bring about unity no first no. corinthians 12 verse 11 can somebody uh read that first corinthians 12 verse 11 so one and the same spirit works in all these things distributing to each one individually as he and in that context, what had been going on? Arguing over gifts and diversity. Who's be- which gift is better? Uh, which ability is better? And what Paul is saying there is, hey, it all came from God through the Spirit anyway. You really don't have a claim on it. Uh, so, being that he had been in Corinth already before he had been to Rome, Understanding that spiritual gifts sometimes don't always bring about unity depending on the individual. He's about teaching unity and unification amongst this group in Rome. Well, if human nature is the same, uh, that's, that, that might be what's going on here. Either way, I want to be mutually benefited by your life my life will mutually benefit you and vice versa. Let's see what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, since Jesus is the main, should be the main focus of our lives that bring about our unity. And then, of course, after that, in verse 13 and 14, what does he want to do? I think Bill went to it. Obtain fruit. Obtain fruit. So you, you're using the... New American Standard, I think. 
And uh, mine has, what does yours have? No, I would not have you ignorant, brother, and that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was led here too that I might have some fruit among you. Okay, fruit. Mine has uh, reap a harvest. So basically, he wants to do what? He wants to convert souls. I mean, isn't that the main mission he's got? And not just to do that, but to benefit who else? Or the bodies that's already existing. So you, the people who in God's church and those he can reach to in evangelism, specifically the Gentiles. So... He's, he's there for a reason. He wants to be there for a reason, and it really doesn't have a lot to do with the scenery, although I think he probably would have liked the scenery if it wasn't from house arrest that we later find him. <laughs> so here he is. So his purpose is clear. I am a slave, verse 1. I am being sent. This is God's gospel. Uh, this is for the benefit uh, uh, to belong to Jesus and to be called one of his saints. So I need to be salvation and I need to grow in the holiness that I have by being a saint in Christ. And so, boy, we got a great summary of what the book is about. Any questions? So in verses 14 through 17, we have what we call the three I am statements of Paul. Not of Jesus. He is not the I am, but they are I am statements. The first one comes out of verse 14. Who would lead? I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 14. Please read verse 14, somebody. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. All right. Obligation. Anybody here ever been under obligation? Debtor. Debtor. Yeah, but hold on. I thought we were taken out of the debt of sin. We don't owe a debt anymore, do we? What's he trying to tell us? Has he changed subjects? He felt indebted to spread the word because he was converted. Not to earn salvation. We're not dealing with him growing in his ability to be saved. The more people I get, the bigger my crown will be type concept. He's trying to say, hey, Christ converted me. He's given me everything. My mission in life is to... Huh? It's, it's his job description. Now, would he say that's just his job description? No, I'm sure he wouldn't. But that has to come with our growth, doesn't it? In our abilities. So Greeks and non-Greeks. So all Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. Greeks actually would have separated themselves out from anybody who's not a Greek. If you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. So uh, Greeks and barbarians are still all Gentiles. So, uh, so he's, he's referring to all classes of people within the Greek culture. Is the, the Greek and the Gentiles, is that the same as uh, Hellenist and Ethnos? Uh, Hellenist 
is uh, Hellenists are Greek-influenced Jews. So, in uh, ethnos is ethnicity, and that's just dealing with any ethnic group. The, pure, the Greeks are pure. Right? The Greeks. Well, that's what they would say they are. Yeah. yeah, Jews would say they are. So it depends on your who you are. Isn't it's really this, not. Isn't this really before Rome really took over? Because Greece came in after um, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They're the ones that came in and had so much influence over them. And then the Romans will come. Yes, as far as, uh, so the Greeks would have later joined the Romans. And uh, after the Greeks declined uh, into what the, uh, and then the Romans eventually took over to where they took over the, um, the groups that rose up uh, under the Greek culture. The, I forgot what, the, uh, forgot what they're called, the Maccabees. So they, yeah. It's quite possible. Uh, so all in the areas up until Rome, he was doing probably, you know, you got the Romans. That was the main empire. But the Greeks were free in the Roman Empire. They were joined together. They were probably all citizens. The barbarians. Yet they had their different class. Barbarians would have been, according to the Greeks and the Romans, anybody who's not a Greek or a Roman in the Gentile class. And that probably in their mind would have included the Jews. Uh, if, you're not a, if you're not a citizen of Rome, you're, you're a barbarian. You know, that's, that's kind of the idea. So he's, he's using a common term of the day that they would have all understood that I'm out here for everybody. Uh, for the, now he's talk, if he's talking to Jewish Christians and getting their attention, he's trying to say to them, I'm out here to evangelize to all people who aren't Jews, as well as the Jews. And at that time, if they weren't a citizen, they weren't a citizen, they had to buy their citizenship? Under Rome, yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been true. We have that uh, talked about in Acts. Hellenist is a, basically a term that uh, so... When you look at beginning of Acts, when you talk about Stephen and the Christians were uh, in Acts chapter two, uh, converted at Pentecost, there were Jews who were converted. Some of those Jews were from Judea and a lot of the other Jews were coming in for the Pentecost from other places within the Greek world, though they were Jews. Being that they, being that they were out of Judea or Jerusalem, they were considered Hellenistic, meaning they were influenced by Greek culture. Most most Jews were already Greek speaking. That was the common language of business and such, like English is in the world. So uh, that would have been normal for any Jew to know Greek. No, they would have been from the outskirts in the Roman Empire. So they're Hellenistic. And so when you look in Acts, those seven men who were made deacons to reach out, you'll see that their names, interestingly enough, that they've chosen to work with the Hellenistic Jewish, now Christians, were actually Hellenistic names. So 
Greek type names. Huh? So that was a region? It was an influence, a cultural influence. So, um, in America, you're a southerner, how can I tell? Well, your, your language, how you speak, how you cook your food, what you've been influenced by, the French culture, the Cajun culture, this, that, and the other culture. So you're coming to the pure area of America, Colorado, and we recognize the differences, and we say, oh, you're not exactly one of us, though you might be a Jew, you're a one who's been influenced by this other culture. Wasn't it Alexander the Great, when he came in and took over that area, he was so in love with the Greek culture that he brought that with him? It was, a, it was, a, it has its pluses and minuses. In fact, at one time, it was so bad that they want, the Greek culture had this idea, the Hellenistic culture had this idea that nudity was very expressive. Let's be, and so, but to Jews, no, that's forbidden. You're not just allowed to go out and know this nudity. And they were wanting to bring a statue of a nudity, as I've read in the past, uh, that's what brought up, one of the things that brought up the Maccabean revolt is that they wanted to bring some nude statues into the temple area of Jerusalem. Well, that's just not going to fly because that is not uh, kosher. And so, so you have this push and pull within cultures. And so in Jerusalem, Judea, you got this more firm concept of what is proper. And if you're out in the Alps regions, you might have been influenced differently. And we don't want to bring that in. And so even in Acts, when you have the six, the seven, uh, including Stephen, the seven dis disciples who are to go help the Hellenistic Jews, it's possibly because of the struggle between the ethnic influences of the time. And so the Christians got, the apostles got together. How can we deal with this in a way that's beneficial to bring about unity, not separation? So even then, you have this concept of unity, not separation. And how can we deal? And that was before the Gentiles are being reached out to fully, right? So you already got this issue to a degree. And now, imagine stronger Jewish material people dealing with Greeks who are from a completely, vastly different culture that don't have any mixing going on at all from their Hellenistic and Jewish. These are total Greeks. They don't have any Jewish influence at all. And, you, and now we have this struggle between a Jewish Christian and Gentile Greek Christians. And so you can only imagine the tense uh, challenges there are. And that's what Paul's dealing with. You say you got from Abraham. Well, let me tell you about your walk. <laughs> yeah, we already know that they're coming from a bad area. And then you get in that concept of homosexuality and all that stuff in Romans. But you don't have anything to step on. You're all the same. 
Well, yeah, we can say that we're not sinners, but uh, the reality is we are. So you got this playing back in cultures. So Paul is saying, I am under obligation. I am under debt to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, all classes of people within the Gentile culture. Does this show his ability to pay back God? No, he can't pay him back. So, But his responsibility is to follow God's will. And uh, boy, we really hit it. Uh, I'll turn to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 real quick. And I'll read that. And then we'll start cutting our time short. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you should not. Who's going to understand that more? The Greek culture or the Hebrew culture? Yeah. You should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And according to what Jesus taught, uh, Back there in Luke, the neighbor is the one you show what to? Mercy. And if you're not being merciful with your Christian brother who might be struggling with a different culture that we know has a lot of errors, how can we be unified? We need to live in a way that shows a brotherly love. I am under obligation to reach out to these people who are so different. I am eager to preach. I've often mentioned, well, I have mentioned in my mind, passion in the Bible is always used in a negative way. It's always about self. Well, Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 10, the idea that I am eager to preach. That eagerness can be conceived as passion. But his passion didn't emanate from himself. It emanated from God's desire that he had clung on to, and that desire was to evangelize. Jeremiah, if you recall, in Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 9, I'll just turn there real quick, and we're almost done. Jeremiah, remember when Jeremiah got upset with God? Everything's going poorly with him. He's frustrated. Things are going good. Things are going bad. Nobody's listening. He's that weeping prophet. Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 9. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all that day. Everyone mocks me. He's a prophet of God, you see. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, Violence and destruction, meaning punishments coming from the Babylonians. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, he's frustrated, see. There is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. And this is the concept that's coming out. I am eager to preach. 
if I hold it in, it's going to be like a fire burning within my bones. There are people who are dying out there. I have no choice. This is my passion. And it doesn't come from me. It comes because of who I have chosen to follow. The passion of an evangelist. And I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew and to the Greek. I am not ashamed. He knows he's a slave of Christ. He knows he's an apostle sent out by Christ. He was not intimidated by the rejection of men because he knows what he's doing is true. And he's confident in the product, and the product is God's gospel. It's the power toward salvation. It teaches us the 